0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Han in Beijing. Coming up, Poland will stop supplying weapons to Ukraine over a row over grain. Top leaders of the US and Israel vow to work together to normalize Israel-Saudi relations. Boeing says China will need 20% of the world's new commercial airplanes between now and the 2020 and the 2042. China is accusing the U.S. of hacking Huawei servers as far back as 2009. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Vice President Han Zhen has held the Global Development Initiative as a success in promoting cooperation and incubating new economic momentum. Han Zhen made the remark during a recent China-hosted meeting at the UN headquarters in New York. He also called for alignment of development strategies of all parties, mobilizing all development resources, and exploration of more pragmatic cooperation. Now, this initiative was proposed by Chinese President Xi Jinping at a UN General Assembly meeting two years ago. More than 70 countries have now joined a group of friends under this initiative, and nearly 200 projects of cooperation have been included in this initiative's project pool. China has announced a plan to launch a special 10 billion US dollar fund to implement this initiative. So joining us now on the line is Aina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Aina.
3: Uh, pleasure to be here, Tinghe.
1: So many people might have this question. Why does China promote this global development initiative given the fact that China's Belt and Road initiative is already has already been seeking to address those very urgent development issues in the global South and beyond?
3: Well, it's, it's a situation where, on one hand, the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, 10 years on, has been creating this kind of connectivity that is necessary for nations to develop. And it's, you know, it's been over a trillion dollars. It, it's proven its success. But on top of that, now what you have is this question about how do you bring countries together uh, in a multipolar world, it's a, a no longer a situation where you have a unipolar world, the U.S. says you should do this and you should follow. So in, instead of that, what has been advanced is a arc, is a plan, an architecture, a design for a world where common prosperity and peace are part of. It. Now, the security initiative and the development initiative are really about every country needs to develop. Every country needs to be secure in itself, and it cannot have that security at the cost of somebody else, and there has to be mutual respect. And in today's environment, mutual respect means understanding, understanding, truly understanding, not just the language, but going deep into the culture, the history, the philosophies, the legal systems, government systems, everything, having a complete understanding. Now, if you know, let's assume that there are differences between countries. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, the fact is that you still need commonalities if you're going to have a global um, system. And that is what uh, the Global Development Initiative is about. It's mm-hmm. establishing that this is a common goal and part of, you know, three pillars that can unite the world around an idea that are, you know, uh, the, these are positive ideas everyone can share even though you have differences. Mm. Uh, you can go back to, I mean, uh, Confucius uh, said a gentleman uh, mm. is, is basically does not impose, he looks for understanding. Uh, every uh, person has their own idea. Harmony is created when you can accept that everybody has their own idea.
1: Mm. So one analysis is that realistically, they say China wants to promote a new initiative taking a different approach, one that is less reliant on infrastructure construction and investment by rallying those financial resources. And even for infrastructure projects, some people say China is gradually shifting towards a quote-unquote small is beautiful approach. What is your take, Aina?
3: Well, you're right. I mean, uh, the, the, the lessons of the uh, Elton <clears throat> Road Initiative is that if you give money to a country that is uh, a democracy, the only thing you know for certain is that when the next uh, government comes in, they will criticize uh, what has happened before. And in some instances, uh, there's a basis for the criticism, not because of what China did, but because of how the money was used uh, by one political party and then criticized by the next. So China has switched to this idea that every project should stand on its own. Every project, uh, even though it's connected to other projects, should have a feasibility study. It should be supportable, not only by China, but by international entities. If you look at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh that uh, China's the largest shareholder but it doesn't have a veto power or anything like this uh what they do is they actually cooperate with the World Bank with the Asian Development Bank with the African Development Bank what do they do they fund projects and, and i think this is the new normal because it's not it, it depoliticizes um you know the whole issue and it makes infrastructure stand on its own and and this is really uh what is necessary so you know i know people want to say oh well why are they they're repeating this is this pulling back no this is this is as i said is these these are three pillars of a new kind of architecture for uh, the world to engage each other even though they have differences to have commonalities in terms of goals for their people and their country
1: mm. so like you suggested earlier i guess in essence uh, this global development initiative, together with the other two pillars of initiative surrounding civilization and security, uh, they really tells us a lot about China's mindset, mentality, and a worldview on international affairs today. So, know a relevant issue when we talk about this initiative is that uh, for example, regarding the UN 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, it is reported that uh, about uh, 90% of those goals are derailed, and then nearly one-third of them are stagnant. So, in your understanding, what's really the fundamental reason behind this?
3: Well, I mean, if you really want to get down to it, it's a, a trail of broken uh, promises, Um you know, there's a, as part of this, there was $100 billion a year that was supposed to come from the developed nations uh, to the developing nations because they don't have the money to do that. But if you're going to have real uh, climate change impact, uh, they have to have the means in order to achieve this. Well, 10 percent of the money has shown up over all these years, only 10 percent. And on that 10 percent, most of the money is going to projects uh, associated with these uh, the donors. Uh, big companies getting rich are getting you know low-cost funding for projects they might have done otherwise. Uh, so there, there's not a, a, a you know there's there's no we here. It seems that these policies are being cynically used by um, people selectively, not for sustainable uh, development, but simply for their own enrichment. And th- this is something that um, plays off. It's very important because. Unless countries do come together genuinely, in, not, not in their self-interest pro- promoting what they can do, but saying, look, globally, we have to look at this, y- you don't have a basis um, to solve these issues. And this is really uh, the fundamentals of what China is trying to say. He says, look, we have to have a set of, of uh, mutually... Um, beneficial goals that we can all agree on, even though we have differences in our languages, cultures, histories, philosophies, outlooks, political systems, economic systems. That doesn't matter. What matters is that we can come to the table. Uh, we can uh, not by, you know, the corporate method of 51% rules, but by coming together and agreeing, mutual agreement. This is the key when you have sovereign nations. And remember, we're, we're no longer in the situation where we used to be, where you know, one nation could tell basically anyone else what they wanted to do. And if you didn't like it, they would coerce you
1: um, mm.
3: or topple your government. Um, so there has to be some sort of basis. And this is what uh, China is proposing. Mm.
1: Uh, well, interestingly, nowadays, uh, Western countries, including the U.S. and the European Union, are also moving to roll out their own uh, development initiatives uh, to promise more investment in the underdeveloped part of the world today. So do you think these uh, Western-led initiatives, for example, in the case of this uh, Build Back a Better World, led by the G7 and this Global Gateway led by the EU, do you think they are based on a genuine wish to do something Beneficial for the global sales, for example, or would you say they are starting from a sort of intention to compete with China, for example?
3: Well, a lot of this is just windowless uh, dressing. I mean, the fact is, the promises made already have been broken. So, what are new promises? You know, if you if you've lied to me uh, countless times, why am I going to believe you when you say, "Oh no, this time I'm not lying." You know, there is uh, a lot of this is uh, about trying to answer back or contain China or all this type of stuff. I mean, it's such wasted energy. You know, we have global problems, not just, you know, not just extinction-level events like the uh, environment, uh, climate change. But, you know, right now there's disease. People aren't talking about it anymore. They say, oh, well, COVID's over, so what? Well, Well, you're having outbreaks in all sorts of countries because their healthcare systems were completely stressed, uh, by COVID, uh, people were weakened. And now, uh, when they need to, you know, actually invest some money to you know, prevent the spread of the next, uh, <clears throat> pandemic, uh, the money isn't there. And where is, where is the, you know, the, the G seven nowhere to be found, even the G 20, look what happened there. I mean, it was, extremely watered down. It doesn't mean anything. And then you start looking at what happened, and you add up, you know, India got a whole bunch of goodies. It was almost like Christmas time for them. They got four cases. Uh, The U.S. cooperated on four WTO cases. They got a joint uh, jet uh, uh, engine-making facility that's going to be put in in, in India. They got some concessions on other matters, and, you know, nothing was discussed about any kind of internal issues uh, for them. Um, so, you know, it doesn't look like the world is pulling together under the existing architecture that was you know, this post-World War U.S. led. So mm-hmm. China is trying to suggest something where everybody can agree. I, mean, I, I don't know anybody who's going to say, no, I don't want to ha- have development because I don't want to help my people. I don't want to have security because, you know, <laughs> then we'd have peace. Um, and, I, you know, everyone wants to, have, to be respected, to have self-determination. That's what sovereignty is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's based on education, understanding each other, not by trying to impose anything
1: like this. Mm-hmm. Thank you, as always, for joining us. That was Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow with the Taihe Institute. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk teixeira I'm a professor of public
4: policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great
1: listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Poland has announced that it is no longer supplying weapons to Ukraine as a diplomatic dispute over grain escalates. Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki says Poland's focus is now on defending itself with more modern weapons. On Tuesday, Poland summoned Ukraine's ambassador over comments made by President Volodymyr Zelensky at the UN. Zelensky said it was alarming how some of Ukraine's friends in Europe were playing out solidarity in a political theater, making a thriller from grain. And for your information, Poland, Hungary, as well as Slovakia recently extended a ban on Ukrainian grain. Poland has already sent Ukraine some 320 Soviet-era tanks, as well as 14 MiG-29 fighter jets. So joining us now on the line is Professor Cui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So, uh, Dr. Cui, in your observation, is there a direct uh, connection between Poland's decision to stop supplying weapons to Ukraine and this particular diplomatic dispute over over the grain issue?
5: Uh, certainly, I think the uh, uh, the recent uh, uh, tensions between those two countries is the outcome of the, uh, as we know, the recent uh, uh, barriers, especially for exchanging between those two countries, uh, really because of the green issue. Uh, but of course, I don't think it's uh, the the whole of the uh, uh, reason because, as we know, uh, a little bit of. A strange for us to understand how big change of these uh, relations between the countries. As we know, since the uh, outbreak of the uh, conflict, uh, Poland showed a very, very strong support uh, mm. to uh, Ukraine yeah. on, on almost every issues, including the, uh, uh, you know, uh, some uh, military assistance and also uh, to promote the uh, uh, membership of uh, Ukraine in uh, European Union and the NATO. But of course, I think that uh, now the problem is maybe for Ukraine, uh, uh, at this moment, maybe mm. Ukraine try to get some more direct support from uh, NATO, from uh United States. So perhaps the importance of uh, uh, po- uh, Polish support becomes smaller, I think, maybe in the consideration of uh, Ukraine. So uh, it shows that uh, when some uh, um, you know, external policy for Poland uh, uh, meet with some, uh, you know, some co-issue, especially for domestic politics, mm-hmm. certainly the Poland uh, will choose the uh, uh, domestic politics as a priority. So I think it gives a very complex for this uh, situation, and uh, it will damage the relations between those two countries.
1: Mm. So realistically speaking, how much does Poland's supply of weapons matter to Ukraine?
5: As we uh, can uh, uh, take account that uh, so far Poland provided some uh, uh, old, old type uh, uh, of weapons, including some uh, you know, uh, 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 Russia-type uh, tanks and also some uh, 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 airplane or uh, fight planes or some other. So I don't think that uh, once uh, Poland stops to supply the military weapons to uh, Ukraine, it will give a very big effect to uh, Ukraine uh, military force. Because mm-hmm. so far, as we know, it's the uh, United States, it's some other members of uh, NATO, Uh, including Germany, France, and the UK, uh, play a major role to support uh, militarily to Ukraine.
1: Mm. So if we talk about this um, existing ban on grain from Ukraine, well, I guess that's a pretty long story uh, that really dates back to the beginning of the of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine I guess initially the European Union decided to step in in, in a kind of uh, wish to help Ukraine economically but then the influx of the Ukrainian grain led to a glut in markets across the Central and Eastern European countries including Poland itself and most recently why do you think the EU has decided not to renew this particular ban? And from Poland's perspective, why has Poland, um, together with Hungary and Slovakia, decided to continue to implement this particular ban?
5: I think why uh, European Union changed its uh, decision and, uh, on this uh, green uh, imported from Ukraine to uh, European uh, countries the major reason is, uh, European Union tried to, uh, have a kind of, uh, uh solidarity, especially on the stance, uh, towards the Ukraine. And especially as we know, there are very big difference between some, uh, Western countries and, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, European countries like uh, Poland and, uh, and Hungary on this issue. Uh, recently, uh, France and Spain, uh, criticized, uh, those, um Eastern uh, European countries said that uh, they, they did something wrong. They uh, broke mm-hmm. out the so-called uh, general stance of the uh, European Union. So I think for European Union, uh, a difficult choice is once they just uh, follow the stance of the uh, Eastern European countries like Poland, perhaps it will lose uh, so, uh, 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 solidarity on its policy towards Ukraine and also at the same time It will have some more, uh, you know, divergences or uh, split, uh, among the members, uh, among the member states. But of course, I think now for European Union, for uh, Eastern European countries, and also for Ukraine, now it's going to a very difficult, uh, triangle relations. Uh, also, you know, the Ukraine side always try to impose some pressures uh, against the Eastern European countries, but mm. from uh, Poland, they do have a different understanding about the nature of relations with uh, Ukraine, because Poland th- th- uh, thought itself uh, play a major role to support Ukraine. So it's a kind of a spatial relations. Yeah. So maybe uh, from po- Poland' understanding, uh, this kind of uh, uh, this uh, divergences on grain issue should be uh, uh, delta with in a, a normal way. But uh, uh, it's out of the expectation of Poland. Ukraine always try to find that, uh, a normal way, for example, to apply uh, application for the WTO and also uh, to uh, yeah.
4: uh,
5: have some also, uh, export uh, import uh, uh, limited from uh, uh, Poland and so on. Mm.
1: So, like you mentioned earlier, Professor Cui, Poland is really supposed to be one of Ukraine's, let's say, staunchest allies. Uh, But uh, from its banning of Ukrainian grain to its latest decision, do you think um, all these uh, developments at different stages will end up uh, raising questions about, say, the longevity and sustainability of the overall Western support to Ukraine. And uh, by the way, do you think other individual countries in Europe, for example, will follow suit by seizing weapon supplies to Ukraine as well?
5: Yes, you also know that uh, I don't think this um, uh, situation, I mean, the tension between two countries will uh, uh, take a long time. I think in the near future, uh, especially under the uh, uh, interference from the European Union, even from the United States, uh, both uh, Ukraine and Poland will try to find that settlement for this attention. But this tendency showed that uh, this this situation showed a tendency that uh, a kind of, of a uh, fatigue uh, from some uh, Western countries to support uh, uh, Ukraine, especially just like I mentioned, uh, when the, uh, domestic, uh, politics consideration, uh, have some, uh, conflict with, uh, uh this, uh, so-called, uh, uh, the, the, the common stance from uh, Western countries towards, uh, Ukraine, certainly, uh, Poland and some other countries, they will take the domestic politics as priority. Yeah. So at that time, there will be some more and more problem. But of course, I think that uh, now it will give a very big test. For united states for european union uh, to show if they have the capability enough to settle down the situation especially to find out the uh, space for ukraine and uh, poland and some other eastern uh, european countries to find out the uh, solutions otherwise certainly there will be some uh, uh, i mean big and big uh, negative uh, impact on this so-called uh, solidarity Uh, among Western countries.
1: Mm, Indeed, Uh, very good analysis. And actually, at the ongoing UN General Assembly meetings, uh, Ukraine's uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, together with U.S. President Joe Biden, has called on world leaders to show unity against Russia's military operation in Ukraine. Uh, whether that's really realistic, that's that will remain to be an open question. But thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Cui Hongjian from the Academy of Regional and Global Governance with Beijing Foreign Studies University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to World Today, I'm Ding in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have pledged to work together to advance the normalization of Israelis' relations with Saudi Arabia. The two leaders met on Wednesday on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in New York, marking their first meeting since Netanyahu returned to the office. The Israeli prime minister said he was very optimistic that the attempt to establish full ties with Saudi Arabia would bear some fruit during Biden's tenure. And in his latest interview with a U.S. TV channel, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reiterated that Palestinians would be very important in any deal to normalize ties with Israel. So joining us now on the line is Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Han.
1: So this particular Biden-Netanyahu meeting that took place in New York on Wednesday itself seemed to be pretty interesting because um the really the the far right government of Benjamin Netanyahu and the Biden administration have really clashed with each other over a range of issues including Netanyahu's um attempt to overhaul the judicial system in his own country his treatment of the palestinians as well as his opposition to any us diplomacy with tehran so with that in mind why do you think Biden, President Biden, has decided to meet with the Israeli Prime Minister.
2: Yes, uh, given all those uh, factors you just mentioned, uh, seems a little bit strange uh, to see now the Biden, uh, even now, very interested to meet with uh, Netanyahu. Actually, if we look about uh, now, what is the uh, wishes come from Biden, uh, even himself, uh, not only his government, that is uh, this, uh, you know, uh, the coming election. Uh, Biden now has already made a announcement. Uh, he's going to uh, compete with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he wants to get his second term. So before uh, this, uh, you know, campaign, uh, presidential campaign, now is approaching. So he wants to get something big uh, from his diplomacy. So this is big, uh, you know, this achievement. Uh, now uh, according to this, uh, some uh, uh, information from his uh, in inner circle, that is this. Uh, you know, relationship between Saudi Arabia and the uh, Israel, uh, if they Saudi Arabia can fully recognize, diplomatically recognize, uh, these uh, ties are uh, being made between uh, those two countries that used to be a big foe with each other. So that will be the big achievement uh, for Biden administration and for Biden himself. This is number one concern. Number two, also, uh, that's the factor of China Because China's influence in the Middle East as a whole now it's getting bigger and bigger. Now the influence is rising, especially uh, uh, after China mediated uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, no longer uh, that, uh, you know, eye on eye each other. Now they're mutually re, uh, you know, uh, open their uh, embassy uh, in each other's territory. So that is the reason uh, Biden administration, uh, they are thinking U.S. cannot be out of the picture uh, in the Middle East anymore. Uh, U.S. needs also make some moves uh, into this area and to counter uh, this influence from China's uh, rising.
1: Mm. So I guess that's why the U.S. is so eager to broker a normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. You talk about the angle of the domestic American politics as well as, uh, say, international uh, politics surrounding the Middle East. So overall... What do you think this um, active attitudes, this eagerness on the part of Biden tells us about his administration's overall Middle East policy right now?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, if you look about uh, right now, uh, the Middle East policy, I think uh, now the pre- uh, priority concern uh, is trying to make uh, this big achievement happening. Uh, that is how to... Uh, bring Saudi Arabia and the Israel together. And meanwhile, can keep a balance, uh, like, uh, get Israel, uh, be, uh, becoming this, uh, security capacity remain, uh, in the, you know, upper hand compared with the other Middle Eastern countries. And meanwhile, also, uh, can ask Israel to make some, uh, uh, backup about their policy to towards Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, this issue of uh, independence of Palestinian country. So this is a, this balance, and then of course we'll make a United States, and then back to the Middle East. Uh, United States cannot, uh, you know, lose their control uh, to the issue happening in this very important area. Uh, given the uh, the situation, like Saudi Arabia no longer, uh, you know, uh, listening to this White House opinion, how to uh, handle this oil production, is a cut or increase the output of oil. Actually, uh, Saudi Arabia not listening uh to any of those opinion coming from the White House uh even mm-hmm. even given the Biden himself paid a visit uh to Saudi Arabia, even had a direct talk uh with the Princess crown and the, even the king and eventually uh when the Biden back to the white house uh the uh, you know the uh, solution coming from the Saudi Arabia remain goes another way uh with the White House so that's the thing uh you know the United States won't want to see anymore uh they want to see. Uh, the Middle East the country, especially Saudi Arabia's so oil production policy, this old pack, uh, should be on the same page, uh, with the United States. Mm. Otherwise, uh, in terms of U.S. domestic policy, the inflation at home, and how to control the oil price in the international state, all those, uh, we ended up, uh, you know, not to mention failure, at least ended up towards the, the, the way, uh, is against the U.S. interest.
1: Mm. So, making a comparison between Israel and the Saudis, which party do you think is currently more eager to see a normalization deal right now? And if we talk about these three countries, U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, which party do you think currently holds more leverage over the others?
2: Well, if we just a comparison, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia to see which party uh, is more eager, I should say Israel uh, should be more, uh, relatively speaking, should be more eager, uh, to have a normalization, uh, relation with Saudi Arabia. Uh, because, uh, you know, Israel now is uh, under this kind of a security concern because the United States already, uh, under Biden's administration, no, no, no longer that tough towards Iran. Uh, this, uh, uh, talk about the nuclear issue with Iran. Uh, it's not like a Donald Trump's time uh, put Iran as the target, and then trying to establish uh, Arabic NATO. Uh, so now it's no longer that way. And the past, uh, Iran and even with Saudi Arabia, the relationship also becoming better and better. So all this make Israel now becoming, you know, feel more fragile and more feel not that safe. Uh, security speaking. So that is why uh, Israel also wants to go through to the like normalize, uh, normalization as a relation with Saudi to make its security concern not that serious, uh, make it feel safer uh, than before. Uh, so this is a uh, uh, big consideration, I think, uh, compared with those two. Mm-hmm. And if you talk about uh, all those three parties now who uh, have more leverage over the others, I think now almost uh, none of them, uh, even United States, not short of leverage, uh, can make like uh, uh, if they make the voice louder, and then the Israel immediately saying yes, yes. Or those time is already over. And uh, United States also has no leverage even on Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I just mentioned the so year production is cut or increased. Even this issue, they cannot make things down. Uh, Saudi Arabia also turned that year to the White House. So actually, United States has no leverage now. But for Saudi Arabia and Israel themselves, also they are not uh, one party, like a very uh, enjoy, very strong leverage over another one. I I don't think so. I don't see that happening. So almost like an equal, almost equal putting now just to see uh, whether they can meet each other on the halfway.
1: Yeah, I get your point. So, by the way. Do you think a recently announced American-supported plan to build a trade corridor linking India to to European countries through the Middle East can help Washington broker a normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia? I'm raising this question because this particular planned project will pass through both the Gulf region and Israel very, very uh, briefly.
2: Yes, I do think uh, this new plan, uh, so-called the corridor, go all the way from India and then to the, the Middle East, to the Europe, that will do help uh, the Washington to block uh, to block uh, this kind of deal uh, between Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, but uh, uh, whether it, uh, it can help a lot, it depends on also the pro- uh, process, uh, the implementation of this deal. Because maybe talking, talking for years, and then cannot come on, you know, becoming a reality. So this uh, leverage, this uh, inference also are getting less. So -hmm. all depends on uh, how it can be proceeded forward.
1: Yeah, it remains to be seen. But thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. He Wenping with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back.
4: Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
1: Boeing has predicted that China will receive 20% of the world's new commercial airplanes deliveries over the next 20 years. The U.S. planemaker says more than, more than 400 airplanes are expected to enter the Chinese civil aviation market on average each year, citing China's robust economic growth momentum as well as increasing demand for domestic travel. In addition, Boeing forecasts that China's e-commerce and express deliveries industries will continuously boost the demand for cargo aircrafts. So joining us now on the line is Professor Liu Chen, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Welcome back. Hello, Professor Liu. Hi. Okay. Hi there. So, Basically, data is telling us that domestic air traffic here in China has already surpassed the pre-pandemic levels, and international traffic is also on a s- showing some signs of recovery steadily. But overall, how would you look at Boeing's long-term forecast of the Chinese market? In particular, we understand Boeing's airplane deliveries to Chinese airliners have been uh, significantly affected by two deadly plane crashes elsewhere in 2018 and 2019. So why does Boeing still have such a forecast of the Chinese market?
4: Well, Boeing's forecast is very much in concurrence with the Airbus calculation because uh, this industry is highly transparent. And the uh, there is a, a clear prediction that over the next 20 years, the uh, world uh, will grow by two point seven in terms of the uh, the uh, uh, the need for aircrafts for uh, uh, civil air, aircrafts, and uh, China will stand out to uh, stay uh, at the average of five point three percent. So this is really a very lucrative and also burdening market for uh, those those big uh, uh, the uh, craft makers. So uh, therefore. Uh, Airbus uh, has been really penetrating uh, in China a great deal and harmonized with uh, the Chinese partners. Not only in the airplane, and uh, uh, last year actually uh, there was a new addition of uh, assembly, lines, uh, assembly lines in uh, Tianjin, and they also work with the uh, few companies to uh, streamline the high quality fuel uh, supply with the uh, airports, etc. So. Uh, Boeing, on the other hand, they actually, they have a uh, difficulty, uh, in the, uh, at home, uh, for the adequate supply of professional uh, workers along the assembly line. Uh, although, uh, China ha- has been a big purchaser, the, uh, delivery of, uh, uh Boeing, uh, is really, uh, something that is not released to Chinese satisfaction. And plus, as you mentioned, there are some accidents and that really, uh, spooks the, uh, uh, not only the, uh, uh the uh, companies, but also the passengers. And so that's why, uh, the new order actually last year uh, dwindled a great deal, uh, for Boeing.
1: Hmm. So more specifically, Boeing says over the next twenty years, Chinese carriers will require will need more than sixty four hundred single aisle jets like the Boeing seven hundred thirty seven Max family. In the meantime, there will be a demand for more than fifteen hundred wide body planes to support international routes expansion. So in your observation, Professor Liu, what will be the landscape of China's um, civil aviation market in the future? Like you, like you mentioned, I guess we are talking about a scenario where there are not only Boeing and Airbus, but also a domestic developed model.
5: Yes.
4: Well, uh, the uh, demand is there uh, not only for fast delivery of people, cargo, um, uh, but the infrastructure uh, is also there uh because for the last 5 years china has uh added uh 30 the uh, new airports with very uh high level of su- uh, sophistication and also over the next 5 years and there's going to be 29 up to 30 uh, new airports uh added on the on the list and plus that many of the third tier or even fourth tier cities are also uh having the plan uh, to build more of the uh airports so uh, both in terms of the uh, market need and also in, in terms of the infrastructure uh, support. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, a high, uh, it is really there to deliver high promise, and plus that uh, more of the regional integration will uh, also require the short-distance travels. And uh, then the opening of uh, uh, Hainai Island uh, as a free port
5: uh, also produce
4: a lot of new orders uh, that can be placed so uh given that uh the uh China has been uh, pretty much reliant on the supply of uh those carriers from Boeing and Airbus and China uh is uh has been really uh doing a lot more homework to build this new model of uh, uh the uh CA uh non, uh, yeah, uh, uh 919 yeah non, uh, 919 and uh hopefully that's going to uh the add also to the, uh, to the choice of fleets. although China is not really going for complete import substitution, uh, it is something that uh, can really ease the market demand and also that uh, uh, it also gives China pride uh, because, you know, uh, uh, by uh, indigenous, indigenous the making of uh, aircrafts shows that uh, China is really going for high-quality development in the civil uh, aviation industries.
1: Hmm. So both Boeing and Airbus, uh, when we talk about, say, competition or rivalry, both of them have a huge stake here in the Chinese market, and both of them actually have received a lot of subsidies from European governments and the U.S. governments, respectively. So with that in mind, Professor Liu, how would you look at this recent decision by the EU uh, to launch investigation into China's um, subsidy to electric vehicle industry at a time when Chinese EVs are gaining momentum in Europe. And also, no one needs a reminder about how the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is seeking to you know, exclude China-made EVs from the American market. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, civil aviation markets and EV markets, these are two different areas, but uh, in your perception, is there any element of double standards on the part of the U.S. or the E.U.?
4: It's a a very perplexing issue because E.U. is highly resolved in the the reduction of carbon. They also have very stringent timeline uh, to achieve uh, carbon neutrality and carbon peaking, and uh, 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 they uh, they have the uh, introduced the CDM system and now replaced by the CBAM system uh, by cross border the adjustment mechanism and this is not really targeting against China actually uh, but of course you know China as the ferocious exporter uh, particularly with the uh, the rapid surge of the uh, exports of e vehicles to. Uh, uh, Europe. So, uh, yes, the Chinese uh, businesses are somewhat victimized by that, uh, uh, well, by that mechanism. But on the other hand, actually, many of those, uh, exporters from China are really joint venture companies. And, uh, uh actually, the, um, a big majority of the stake is coming from EU, et cetera. So, uh, in a way, they are really penalizing, uh, you know, at least in monetary terms, over uh, their own investors, and uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, it also gave a sort of a, uh, the trend-setting uh, signal to many other countries, including of China, that uh, the uh, carbon tracing and also the uh, subsidies offered by the, gov- uh, by the government are there uh, to be reconsidered so that they will not really uh, be there uh, only to address the last mile, the uh, decarbonization. They will not really uh, uh, push forward for the uh, distortion of market. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, uh, it is the post-market rule, and there is some sort of uh, political pressness in that, but uh, more uh, uh, the intention is really to drive for uh, the clean de- delivery, clean production around the world.
1: Okay, thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Liu Baocheng with the University of International Business and Economics. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding in Beijing. China has accused the United States of infiltrating Huawei servers beginning in in 2009. China's Ministry of State Security said on Wednesday that the Tailored Access Operation Unit of the U.S. National Security Agency carried out the attacks in 2009 and then continuously monitored Huawei servers. The attacks are said to be part of a broader effort to steal data, which culminated in tens of thousands of cyber attacks against the Chinese targets last year. The U.S. government has been sanctioning Huawei for years in order to cut the company from the American technologies. So, for more, I earlier had a talk with Andy Mock, Senior Fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. So, um, China's Ministry of State Security has actually not provided too many details regarding this alleged hacking of Huawei by the U.S. But, in your observation, do you think this particular acquisition is trustworthy?
0: Well, one of the big challenges uh, with cyber attacks being Hong- hung is that attribution or actually knowing um, who the attacker, actual attacker or culprit is, can be very challenging. Um, However, of course, cyber defense can also be very sophisticated as well. So I think that when a major country and a credible organization like the Ministry of State Security in China makes these kinds of announcements i think we can be pretty confident that even if they don't reveal all of the details that uh it in fact is very credible
1: okay so on the corporate front back in the year 2009 i would say huawei was not yet a tech uh, giant or a tech star as it is perceived as today. So why do you think Huawei became a target of U.S. cyber attacks even back then, if the latest acquisition is true?
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, from the American perspective, um, and particularly the American intelligence community, um, they're always looking for what they would see as emerging threats. So they, of course, need to focus on current threats, but they also want to be able to uh, identify in their minds, you know, what are the future threats. And the U.S. places a lot of importance on its technological superiority. So I think it's not surprising at all that they're watching uh, different startups uh, from China and other countries uh, to see if they might develop into future uh, tech competitors. So from that perspective, I think it's not surprising at all uh, that, they, that they would have been paying attention to Huawei. Uh, you know, such a long time ago.
1: Hmm. So do you see any correlation between possible cyber attacks against Huawei over the years, uh, this allegation, and the, the actual sanction placed against Huawei by the U.S. government in recent years?
0: Well, I think, you know, we go back to this core idea that the way the U.S. defines its national security interest, is that maintaining technological superiority is one of the top priorities. So if it does see a threat, um, I think certainly uh, marshalling uh, intelligence assets, including cyber attacks uh, against these targets, would uh, not be surprising at all, as well as um, other methods that we could consider lawfare, so not warfare, but lawfare, meaning using the tools of uh, the legal field. And here the legal field would be broadly defined, um, including sanctions, uh, other types of measures uh, against their target. So, no, I think, again, this, you know, I think is very much consistent with um, the way most people would understand how the U.S. uh, tries to protect what it sees as its national security interests.
1: Mm. So, by the way, I mean, when the U.S. government kicked Huawei out of the 5G equipment market a couple of years ago, uh, a primary uh, excuse or uh, the the so-called reason cited by the U.S. government is that Huawei has a potential linkage with the Chinese government or the Communist Party of China. Um, so... Was that claim in mind? Do you think? How would you view this allegation that the US has been hacking Huawei since two thousand and nine? That's do you see any interesting correlation between these two things?
0: Well, you know, there's a offensive and a defensive element to this, Ding Hung. So I think from the US intelligence community perspective You know, they want to gather as much valuable information about private sector actors, government actors, uh, as much as they can. So I think that helps us understand the cyber attacks or the hacking. Um, At the same time, I think they also want to do what they can to prevent who they see as their adversaries from doing the same to them. So even if there is the slightest potential risk, um, you know, I think. It's not surprising that uh, those responsible for U.S. national security uh, would see threats, perhaps even where no actual threat exists, but certainly they could uh, imagine a threat and would want to take action to defend against that.
1: Mm. So in a bigger picture, since the revelation by Mr. Edward Snowden, uh, cyber attacks have been a point of tension between Washington and Beijing. Uh, there were allegations against each other. Uh, so, what do you think is the role of this issue in the current uh, China-U.S. relations today?
0: Well, I think this is not unique to the uh, China-U.S. relationship. You know, other countries, including allies of in the United States, uh, yeah. also have had issues with this. So. Um, I don't see this as uh, unique, um, but certainly to the degree that either country feels that the other side is doing something that uh, goes beyond beyond the boundaries of what uh, might be considered acceptable behavior, uh, certainly that can uh, introduce more friction or tension into the relationship.
1: That was Andy Mock, Senior Fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.